Tonight on Farage, we're going to be talking about NATO expansion. Is it making the world a safer place? We'll talk about Boris's trip today to Northern Ireland. Has it made a deal between Sinn Féin and the DUP more or even less likely? The state of NHS dentistry, people flying all over the world to get treatment. And I'll be joined on Talking Pints by former pop idol judge and DJ Dr Fox. Good evening. Now, today's news agenda has been absolutely dominated by Northern Ireland and Boris Johnson's visit, and we will debate and discuss that on this show. But before we get to that, something else is going on. You heard about it last week, but now, within the space of the next few days, there will be formal applications from both Sweden and Finland to join NATO. Now, this is something that is being treated gleefully by many, many world leaders. Many saying it's a great move, it'll make the world a safer place. Others saying, look, it's up to Finland, it's up to Sweden. What, of course, Finland joining will do is give us now quite a big border between a NATO country and Putin's Russia. Now, those that know me know I've been fairly critical of NATO expansion over the years. I've always thought that it was provocative towards a Russian leader who would use paranoia with his own people. I even predicted a war in Ukraine way back in 2014 in the European Parliament. None of this, by the way, none of this makes me a Putin supporter, as those on the left would scream. And of course, I absolutely deplore much of what has happened in Ukraine over the course of the last three months. Does it make sense for countries that have been neutral, in one case since 1945, Finland, in another since the times of Napoleon with Sweden, does it make sense for them to join NATO? Well, I get it. I understand why they might want to join NATO. Does it make sense for NATO to allow them in? Are we in danger here of actually boxing Putin in? As we expand and expand, up to and including his borders, as we talk about war crimes trials after the war, and as we see the number of Russian losses now estimated at 27,000 men and 3,000 military vehicles. There are many this morning saying that Russia are now losing this war. So why not fight to the death? That seems to be the approach from the West at the moment. And I think actually it might be cleverer for us to offer him some way out in order that we can start some peace negotiations. That's my view. I think it's a mistake, a mistake at this moment in time, I really do, to allow Sweden and Finland to join NATO. Maybe I'm in a minority position here in the village of Westminster, but then again, that wouldn't be for the first time, would it? So please tell me what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. Is this the right move? Let me ask somebody who I've no doubt will have a firm opinion on this, and that is General Lord Richard Dannett, uh, and of course, former CGS. And, and, and we, we've debated this, Lord Dannett, before on this programme, uh, and I know that you had some reservations. Since we last spoke, we've seen some pretty appalling, atrocious behaviour uh, by Russia, by its soldiers. Uh, does that change things? Does it make sense to you right now? Is it the right move for us to accept Finland? And Sweden. Well, Nigel, good evening. Um, I think what we can all agree, what we've seen over the last few weeks is a very aggressive, bloodthirsty Russia, which I think any country that has a common border with Russia would be seriously re-evaluating its own security arrangements. So 
against that background, totally Putin-inspired, frankly, I can't blame Finland or Sweden at all for wanting to reverse years, decades long, centuries long, uh, histories of, of neutrality and believing that they would be better off in the interests of their people to come under the collective defensive, and I stress the word defensive, umbrella of NATO. And in your introduction, perfectly reasonably, you, you talked about NATO expansion. And, and there was a kind of sort of underlying thought there that this expansion could go on even further. And if you extrapolate the expansion even further still, maybe pushing into Russia, well, come on, that's not right at all. NATO is first, foremost, and only a defensive alliance. And I think all the countries that have a border with an aggressive Russia have the right, the independent democratic right, to decide that they want to do the best thing for their collective security, and in the case of Sweden and Finland, join NATO. I fully understand all of that, and I've no doubt that Georgia uh, perhaps will be, the, will be the next country that has this conversation. I also fully accept that NATO is a defensive organisation. Of course I do. What I'm saying is that Putin is able to use this continued expansion as an excuse with his own country, perhaps even with his own generals, for the continuance of this and perhaps more incursions to come. But my question is this. I quite understand why. If I lived in Finland, I might think it's a good idea to join NATO. But just because the country wants to join doesn't mean NATO has to accept them. And I ask you, is there a danger that we are boxing Putin into such a corner that he might use measures uh, that none of us have, have, well, we've feared, frankly, since 1945? He's openly talked about nuclear weapons. Is the West on a collision course here? Are we actually perhaps going to make this situation the worst the world's ever seen? Well, Nigel, I think you've got to turn it around and look at this differently. I absolutely support Vladimir Putin and the Russian people's right to completely dominate and own, um, without interference, the territory of Russia. That's their absolute right to have um, sovereign independence of their own territory. And exactly the same way, uh, Sweden and Finland and Poland and Romania and other countries but for a period of the 20th century were under Soviet control purely because the Red Army in 1943, 44, 45 advanced through their, through their, their territory and did not withdraw at the end of the Second World War. For those reasons only, those countries became Soviet, Russian by extension. So they have an absolute right to want to be independent. Ukraine is a separate issue. We can come back to Ukraine specifically in a moment. But the point I'm making is that all those countries and Russia have an absolute right to the independence of their own territory. And just because uh, NATO has expanded, the defensive alliance that is NATO, and will probably shortly include Sweden and Finland, that should not be interpreted to any sensible thinking Russian to think that represents a threat to Russia. No. We support Russia's right to run its rule of law within its own boundaries. Sweden the same, Finland the same, Great Britain the same. So let's not get carried away. There's no expansion going to push into Russia. Um, but Ukraine is a separate issue. No, fully understand, appreciate all of that. Final thought, perhaps, Lord Danner, on all of this. Are we dealing with Vladimir Putin with a rational actor? 
Well, that's of course is the big doubt, and that is the big concern. Uh, I think you and I have talked about it before. The rational thing, to my mind, for him to have done up until the 24th of February was to amass quite a large force on the Ukrainian border to threaten, to intimidate, to yep. bully. And that had the effect that made uh, Vladimir Putin the world leader that everyone wanted to talk to. Uh, Macron and others beat a path to his long, ridiculously long table to talk to him. But once he crossed the border, which to my mind was not the rational thing to do, then he became the pariah and his army has let him down woefully, both in their military incompetence and their huge indiscipline, which we're now seeing in the war crimes that are being committed. Um, he's been let down fearfully. But um, it begs the wider question as to how rational, how healthy he is. And if he's not that healthy, does his lack of healthiness, maybe he has cancer, maybe he's had some strokes, I, I don't know, but he doesn't look good to me. Maybe a little bit like if you know your Bible, it could be Samson in the temple bringing the pillars of the temple down and bringing the whole building onto mm. his own head. If he's not rational, that's a danger. And for the West, <clears throat> that's a danger. I hope and pray that's, that is not the case. But um, the, the nuclear question remains the most worrying question. And we just have to face yeah. up to that and be very, very realistic about it. Lord Dana, thank you very much indeed, as ever, for joining me on this programme. Thanks, Nigel. Now, Boris Johnson headed off to Belfast this morning. Uh, and, of course, we've heard some really tough talk from cabinet ministers over the course of the last few weeks. Yes, Article 16, we're going to scrap the protocol. That's what many Conservative cabinet ministers have been saying. And, of course, the real effect of this protocol is that a part of the United Kingdom has effectively been cut off in many ways from the rest of us. You know, we've been through on this programme and rehearsed why Sinn Féin are the largest party instalment. It's because the unionists can't get together and they're horribly, horribly divided. But where are we going with this? Because it's perfectly clear from what Boris Johnson wrote earlier on today, said when he was in Belfast, that the government is not going to scrap the protocol, but they are going to amend the legislation. Does that actually make any difference at all? Isn't this simply kicking the can down the road? They're the initial thoughts that I have. Well, joining me is Lord Nigel Dodds, former deputy leader of the aforesaid Democratic Unionist Party. Now, Boris Johnson has called for leadership, for the DUP to show leadership. Why don't you just accept the fact that Sinn Féin are now the biggest party and go into government with them? Well, we have no illusions about the results of the election. I mean, unionists are still, by the way, the biggest designation in the Assembly. Uh, you know, three more seats and we would have been the biggest party. Well, if you were united, that might be yeah, the case, and, but and not, are you? No, and the DUP is by far the biggest party. And we have called for cooperation amongst unions. We would welcome that and hopefully that will happen. But where we are now at the moment, Boris Johnson calling for leadership from yeah. the DUP. Well, I think it's time that Boris Johnson delivered on what he has been saying for over almost a year now. In July last year, he set out a command paper in which he said the conditions have now been met for the triggering of Article 16 to suspend major parts of the protocol. We're still waiting. Every time, tough talk, nothing happens. But he's made it clear today. He's made it clear, Lord Dodds, today that he isn't going to do that. He's, you know, he's going to amend the legislation in Westminster, and that's going to be sufficient to solve all of your problems. So you should be happy. Well, we're going to wait and see what the legislation actually says. We're going to see whether it deals with the trade problems, 
but also deals with constitutional problems because the root of the matter is this. And the reason we have checks, checks are a symptom of the problem, is because EU laws apply directly in Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom, without anyone in Northern Ireland having any vote or say on those laws. No other country in Western Europe, never mind the world, is a democracy, would accept such a situation. My appeal to other parties in the Assembly, whether they're nationalist unions or others, is to say, why do you tolerate such a situation where you don't have the say or a vote on laws that govern us? So we need to get, get rid of that problem as well as the trade and the check issues. And I we will examine the legislation. I guess the answer. Why do they so, do that? So you'll examine the proposed legislation. If the legislation is proposed, would you at that moment go into a former government no, in because I listened to your leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, earlier on today, and he was kind of saying, well, we've had enough of promises, we actually want the legislation to be passed. At least that's the inference I got from what is... Is that really what he was saying? Yeah, I think Geoffrey is spelling out very clearly the message that we got back on the doorsteps among unions is this. Look, we've had legislation previously. Remember the UK Internal Markets Bill last year? It actually was introduced on the floor of the Lords. There was debates on it, and then it was withdrawn by Michael Gove. We're not going to fall for that one again. We need to see action. Now, that action can take a number of forms. This legislation will be examined in detail. We will need to see it in place before we take the word of, of a politician, no matter how eminent in Westminster, on something that is an existential threat to Northern Ireland's place, not just in the internal market of the United Kingdom, but our constitutional the position truth of it as well. Is, the truth of it is, Nigel Dodds, you're going to be back here in a year's time saying exactly the same thing, aren't you? Well... If we are, there will be no Belfast agreement. There will be no institutions at Stormont. Does Boris Johnson really want that as a legacy? Say, when you say no Belfast agreement, what are you actually saying? Well, I'm saying that there cannot be a situation where we have a Northern Ireland Assembly where members are powerless to affect major areas of the economy, where we have laws imposed upon us by the European Union, where the courts have ruled that it breaches the Act of Union, where democracy is, is out the window, and where the Belfast Agreement itself, which is three strands. Strand two is, is north-south, strand three is east-west between Britain yeah. and Ireland. One part of that has been elevated above the other. One part has been trashed, the unionist side when of it. You say, when you say the breakdown of the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement, however people choose to remember it. Are you actually suggesting that we could go back to the bad old days of the Troubles? No, because the Belfast Agreement, what I'm talking about are the political institutions. Nobody wants to see a return to violence. But in this whole process leading up to the implementation of the protocol, who was threatening violence? We had Leo Varadkar running around the Taoiseach of the Irish Republic, the Prime Minister, waving yeah. pictures of customs hosts being burnt out, warning of a return know, to violence. But, they used the threat, but, but, but we're but, not. But he's we, gone. But he's yeah, gone. Yes, but the Irish government still needs to act responsibly. Nobody is advocating a return to violence. Nobody wants to see it. I don't believe the evidence is there that that will happen. But what we are talking about is the collapse of the political institutions. Not because we want to see that, but because when you have a protocol that trashes democracy, trashes the Belfast Agreement, trashes the Act of Union, you can't expect unionists then to go and implement that protocol in an act of self-harm. That isn't going to happen. Nigel Dodds, I suspect this one will run and run, and I think that Lord Dodds will be back here in a few months' time saying it simply isn't good enough and the government hasn't stepped up. Just a final quick thought before the break. Now, the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey. Andrew, out to lunch Bailey, as he was known in the city. Um, not because he enjoyed long boozy lunches so much as he just didn't ever actually do anything when he was boss of the FCA and was wholly ineffective. This is the man 
who completely failed to predict the rise of inflation, despite the fact that's the primary job of the Bank of England, and who now comes out and tells us it's all the fault of the Ukraine war. Don't blame me, Gov, in the same way that Joe Biden is in the USA. The facts are inflation was strongly embedded within the British economy before this act of war. This is a pathetic excuse from a completely useless, hopeless, failing governor of the Bank of England. But he does have one bit of advice for you. Oh, yes. He says, those of you out there must restrain the urge to ask for higher wages. Well, I suppose when you're on half a million quid a year, it's probably quite easy to say that. In a moment, we talk about the NHS endlessly. 6.4 million people on the waiting list for procedures. We never talk about dentistry and the mess that's in. We're going to in just a moment. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show... The vaccine injured and those who died after the jab can now have their cases looked at as part of the pandemic inquiry. But is it enough? Vicky Spit and Charlotte Wright will be giving their reaction after their husbands died following the jab. Eva Vladingerbrook is back to hold those in power to account as they contemplate surrendering sovereignty to the WHO. And Womble's creator and music critic Mike Batt will be on hand to discuss this year's Eurovision Song Contest. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show from 8 o'clock. Well, we had that debate, didn't we, earlier with General Lord Richard Dannett about NATO expansion and about my concerns that we're just boxing Putin in. I'm not even sure that he's actually rational. I'm very worried about this. Your response is, one viewer says, I fear that Sweden and Finland joining could push Putin to use nuclear weapons, but they should be free to choose. Yes, those countries are free to choose. The question is, does it make sense for NATO to have them as members? Just because you want to join a club doesn't always mean they're going to accept you. John says, why should they not be free to make their own democratic decisions? I repeat the point. You know, they may want to join the NATO club. Does it make strategic sense for the NATO club to let them join? We could offer them all sorts of other protections. Was it what, was it what Groucho Marx said? I'd never join a club that would have me as a member. Another viewer says, you watch, Putin will use this as an excuse to attack other European countries. Well, whether he does that or not, he will use this as a narrative with the Russian people, as indeed he did on their big, great patriotic day on the 9th of this month. Sarah says, if this can deter Putin from further invasions, then of course it is a good idea. Well, some pretty mixed opinions then. I, I sense with this issue, like so many issues, you'll get a un, almost unanimity of view in Westminster, in the buildings behind me, amongst the press. You actually go out into the country and find there's a different debate. Now, what the farage, I tell you what. We're always talking, the first show I did with you, on the 19th of July last year, I talked about the NHS backlog and my fear that it would get worse, not better. And we talk about hips and knees and we talk about diabetes and we talk about cancer diagnosis. What we don't talk about at all is dentistry. We just don't debate it. Well, we're about to because Kedma and Stuart uh, Woodmancy, they were looking for NHS dental treatment. Uh, they couldn't get uh, half the family on the list, and they finished up going to Brazil 
to see a dentist. Well, Kedmer and Stuart, join me now. Good evening. How are you doing? Good evening. Hi there. Just tell us, lovely to see you. I just, I wanted to just tell us this story about how you couldn't get half the family onto an NHS dentist and why you went to Brazil. Yeah, um, Ted was originally from Brazil, um, so we've been trying to register the family now for, I think it was five years. Um, We've actually got a two and a half year wait. Five years, yeah. Two and a half year waiting list now in our local area. Um, So any emergency access we need, we can't get hold of. We can't go private because there's at least a six months waiting list privately. Um, So, yeah, basically we're combining our trips to Brazil to see the family we're going to see our family dentist. Exactly. Two questions. When I arrived in 2017, I tried to register myself straight away, but couldn't uh, uh, because of all this backlog. But we didn't see a big deal at first, and we would just use our uh, visits to the family in Brazil to combine with the visits to the dentist. But that's not uh, that's not good in a long term as a long term um, strategy. So I've been trying for <laughs> years still, and nothing happened. And even trying to register our toddler son. It's not yeah. happening at all. So now, as a almost nine month year, not nine months pregnant, uh, I'm thinking about register the baby straight away. So when the baby needs, then should be okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's very. I think registering a newborn is a very good idea, as you say. By the time they've got teeth, they might just get onto a list. Well, I want to say, Kevin Stewart, thank you very much indeed for coming on and sharing your story and it is an extraordinary thing isn't it and i'm joined in the studio by nhs dentist former mep dr henrik overgaard nielsen and somebody who's been involved in the politics of dentistry over quite a few decades i think it's fair (laughs) to say i mean that story you know there's a two and a half year waiting list to even become a patient of an NHS dentist, and they were looking to try and find private appointments up in Yorkshire, and there was a six-month waiting list for that. Just, you know, don't hold back. Where are we with NHS dentistry right now in this country today? We're in a pretty bad place, and I am a firm believer that if we want NHS dentistry, which I think we should have, then we need to make it available to everybody. But the government has tried... They imposed a a disgrace contract on us in 2006 and both Labour and Conservative said at the 2010 election that the contract was not fit for purpose. I have tried to push for a new NHS dental contract for 14 years or something like that and the government is still dragging their feet. The funding is simply not there. Even before Covid and everything else, they only fund enough to treat about half the population. And that's not good enough. Isn't the truth of it with dentistry that what they've done is they've kind of forced those that can afford to go private to go private? Uh, That might be in the politician's mind. Uh, I think that's really lousy to do that. But I think it's happening. It, it, 
might very well uh, be one of the reasons why. But I mean, I see patients on a regular basis. I do a lot of emergency treatments for NHS 111. And about eight or nine out of 10 patients will ask me if we can register them. And for the first time at our practice, for over 20 years, we're not registering new patients. Because you're full? We're simply full. We haven't got the capacity. And that's the problem. We've got more dentists on the register than we had before. But we had, in the past two years, 3,000 dentists leaving the NHS. There are more dentists, but they don't 3, want... 3,000 dentists? 3,000 dentists leaving the NHS. It, it, it's ridiculous. And everybody's talking, well, we need to train more dentists. We don't. We need to make an NHS that is, uh, a, a, that is actually good for both patients and for dentists. We need to make it attractive to dentists to join the NHS again. And at the I, moment, I, I sense we've just opened up a, a discussion and debate that we're going to have again and again over the course of the next few months. But one final thought for us on this. I didn't know 3,000 dentists had left the NHS. I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Why is dentistry such a low part of political debate or media coverage in this country? Dentistry has always been a Cinderella service in the NHS, and that's the problem. And we will continue being a Cinderella service either until the post bags are full again for MPs or until the minister certainly gets a toothache. Extraordinary. Henry, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We're continuing on the theme of the ridiculous. A Sunderland football fan. Now, of course, he's very, very excited because his club, uh, as you know, are there. They're going to Wembley. They're pushing to get back in the Premier League. And he's actually, because it's 260 quid return to go from Sunderland to London by train, he's doing it via Menorca. And it's going to cost him 23 quid uh, to go there, to fly to Menorca, to fly back to Stansted. And a member of the public has heard about his situation and is offering him a flight from Stansted. But I think maybe that's a comment on just how expensive it is to travel by train in this country. Uh, a couple more thoughts. The Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, I've been enraged over the years as we come, you know, 24th in 2015, 24th in 2016, always coming last, knowing that the rest of the continent in what is a political contest in terms of voting, they hate us. It's because of Brexit. Um, and I have to say, I did think at one time, maybe seriously of proposing that we withdrew from the Eurovision Song Contest, but we've kept on there. And actually, this year's entry has come second. Okay, Ukraine won. I knew they were going to win. I nearly put a big bet on them, but I thought the price was a bit short. But we've come second in the Eurovision. Now, this may well reflect well on Sam Ryder and his song, but I think what it tells you, I think what it tells you, actually, is that Europe likes us again. That Brexit means we're actually getting on better because it's over, it's done. We're getting on better with our European neighbours in many ways than we were before. Um, and I have to just quickly talk about the fact that 436 people, migrants, crossed the English Channel yesterday. And you can look at the numbers, we've been through them before. But just a thought on this 1,750 have crossed the Channel so far in May. And we're exactly halfway through. That's the same number as came in the whole year, virtually, of 2019. We are up to the whole of 2019's figures already. Rwanda, anyone? Well, let me tell you. 
You know, we were told over the weekend that 50 people in this country have been told they are inadmissible to stay here. They will be flown off to Rwanda. That is making no difference to the people who are massing outside Lille and elsewhere. They don't believe it. They'll only believe it when they see it. And I've said it again and again, and I'll go on saying it. This number is going to be 100,000 people this year, all of whom we have to give uh, food, home, shelter and dentistry, um, as, well as, as well as medical care too. And it's going to be a massive political problem. I just hope, for the sake of this government, that they are able, they are able to make Rwanda work. Although stuck inside the ECHR, I don't think they can. One or two more comments from you before we go to the break. Uh, some more feedback to this discussion, this debate about the extension, expansion of NATO. One viewer says, only time will tell, but I fear this is provocative. And that's my concern. Marion says, I'm sure it is the right move. It should ensure Putin doesn't try to invade any further. Well, Marion, you may well be right. But my concern isn't that so much as what the way that he uses this narrative with his own Russian public in a country that has pretty much total state control of what people get to see and what they get to hear. Another says, it is what their elected governments want, then of course it is. Yeah, we've rehearsed that again and again and again. And finally, Barry says, no, 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 we do not want further expansion of NATO. And I was interested to see the other day, it's not just me, by the way, arguing this, you know, the Pope... The Pope himself said just 10 days ago that he felt in many ways what we'd done with NATO expansion, and I think by implication EU expansion as well, is we'd actually acted in a provocative way. None of this, folks, is a defence of Putin. None of it excuses the appalling barbaric behaviour. But it is actually quite good to understand how geopolitics work and how dictators can use political situations to their advantage with their own people. Now, in a moment, I'm going to be joined by former judge on Pop Idol and very well-known DJ. Now, I'm not sure whether it's Neil Fox. I'm not sure whether it's Foxy. I'm not sure whether it's Dr. Fox, because I've heard of him in all those incarnations over the last 30 years. But in just a moment, on Talking Pines, we will find out. Talking Pints, yes, my favourite part, not just of the programme, but of the day, to be absolutely honest with you. Well, of course, I'm joined in the studio with someone today, very well known to many, who love radio, love television, love Pop Idol and all of those things. Before I introduce our guest, here he is reacting to Will Young's audition, performing Blame It on the Boogie, back in 2001. You don't blame it on the sunshine, you don't blame it on the moonlight, you don't blame it on the good time. Blame it on the boogie, yeah. To blame it on the sunshine, whoo. Blame it on the moonlight. You don't blame it on the good time, yeah. Blame it on the boogie. Yeah, I, I thought it was, um, the word I wrote down was a little bit cheesy. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that's the song and perhaps the performance. And, and it, you did dance like you got a couple of packs of Gorgonzola strapped around your kneecaps. Um, but uh, it, it, it was... It was, it was a pleasant cheddar rather than a, a, I think a stinky Stilton. <laughs> so it was good cheese. I'm sorry. No, no, did it? I was trying to work out. It got it in. No, it was good cheddar. It was not stinky Stilton. It was fine. Very nice indeed. 
<laughs> Stinky Stilton, Neil Fox. Well, <laughs> Cheers. Welcome to Talking <laughs> Cheers. Pines. Thank you very much. Good to see you. And on mm. that clip, because we had Pete Waterman, mm. who we also had sitting in that I, chair. I saw him, uh, this was a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah. I didn't realise what a railway enthusiast. Uh, I mean, he is the, the world's greatest railway underwriter. And uh, to be <laughs> yeah. fair, has amassed a big fortune and spent a lot of it on railways yeah, as well. That's no. his thing. He loves he was, it. It was extraordinary. Now, what do I call you? I, 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 was, oh. I was sort of teasing before. Just you, call you, Just call You me were Neil. Dr Fox when you were at Capital, I think. I was. Yeah. And yet, when Capital was really kind of the big challenger to yeah, Radio was. 1, and there, and there wasn't the mass, you know, we didn't have heart and all these other... We didn't, indeed. It was sort of quite radical stuff that was mm. happening. I guess Capital was a pretty exciting place to be. Uh, wasn't ca- it? Capital, I mean, in the late 80s, early, uh, and all through the 90s, was a, a wonderful place. Uh, I guess, yeah, radio was a very different place in many respects. That the whole broadcasting landscape has changed totally. Technology's changed a lot of things, but they were great, you know, with Tarrant and Co. And some legendary yeah. DJs. We had a lot of fun. I'll tell you what hasn't changed in DJing. Tony Blackburn. Well, no, <laughs> he sounds just the same. He's got I, that the same jokes, energy. The jokes, they're, they're terrible. They are. But but he's still really good at what he does. I, God knows how old he is now, but he is still, he really is a legend. Generally. All of which begs the question, mm. what do you think makes a good DJ? What makes, I mean... Because it's, it's mm. kind of, you know, I've done radio before I did telly and, yep. and, and different. It was talk radio as opposed, yep. to, as opposed to music and entertainment. But isn't that relationship that the listener builds with the presenter? It's a very close relationship, isn't it? It is. Uh, I suppose it depends what, what makes a good DJ. OK, we t- if we're talking music radio, which I've done mm. all my life, you know, people, I think, choose radio stations because they have a kind of personality of their own so whether you like capital or heart or kiss or classical or whatever it's because you feel comfortable with the kind of music they play but the feel they have as well because it is you invite them into your home or your car or your shower or your bedroom you know every day they're they're part of you so we were often deemed friends on the radio so you had to be deemed that kind of person that people want to have as their friend i guess but you know interesting informative education there's lots of different sort of i suppose types of dj same with the talk radio you've just got to be interesting haven't you? you've got to engage people yeah i you know one of the most interesting comments i ever heard on radio came from the great the late great to terry wogan right who was a brilliant broadcaster yes i mean and he was asked a question many, many years ago about the size of his audience, because Radio 2, massive, yeah. massive audience. He was asked a question about how many listeners he had, and he answered it by saying, no, I've only got one listener. That mm. to me, as a broadcaster, I'm yep. talk, you know, I want you to feel very much that so. I'm talking to you yeah. as a person. And is that, I, I wanna, maybe that's the trick of it, really. Yeah, if you ever hear a broadcaster go, hi, everyone, and all of you out there, you've, you've lost me immediately. Because you feel, <laughs> no, genuinely, because it is that one on, one-to-one thing that you want to feel at any one time that they're talking to me. And I very much know that I love radio. I've always liked radio, and mm. I still listen to radio all the time. Under 30s don't listen to music radio at all now. I think radio's losing. Well, this is my next question. Because yeah. that's tech. You know, so yeah. I, I've got three kids, 15, 19, and, and nearly 21. They don't listen to radio, apart from when Dad's on, and I kind of make them. No, but over, over in the car, because it's a habit, I play the radio in the car. But after a time, if we're on a journey, they'll go, can I stick the Spotify playlist on? Because they go, why would I want to hear someone else's choices of songs when I can't affect it they're not talk they're not particularly interesting or funny a lot a lot of music radio doesn't 
have a lot of chat on it now. It doesn't have a lot of entertainment. It's mainly music. In a way, because they're trying to compete with Spotify and Apple and Amazon and the streaming platforms. Yeah. I want to um, come, yeah. come back to that, but I remember... I remember... I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a few weeks younger than you. So I remember... <laughs> but I remember, you know, Sunday evening, you're waiting for what is going to be number one. Yep. And, you know, people would go out and buy records mm-hmm. and you'd follow that record in the charts and, and there was no internet or anything like that, but there were music newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, the charts were a major part, weren't they? They were. But, of course, it was the way you got music, right? So you could only listen to it on the radio or you went to buy it. So when you're a kid and you didn't have much money, you couldn't buy a lot of records. You'd buy maybe one or two a week. If that, so that the, the chart was the way you could hear the 40 biggest songs yes. and people would sit there with their play and record on their cassette recorders and then some bugger like we would come along and, and I'd start talking and they'd be, oh, no, I, I missed it, right? <laughs> so so they have a cassette with someone on it and just a little bit of me at the uh, beginning and a little bit of me at the end or other jocks and... Um, and then that's how you got your songs. So it was a big part. And who would be number one? We didn't know. There were no real predictions at that time. You know, you know now on a Monday it who's going to be number one. It didn't sort of leak so much, did it, either? It didn't. Well, it was harder because it was all done. Uh, it wasn't done digitally. As soon as things yeah. are done digitally, it's so much easier to count and get that instant information. So, you know, we don't, we're not so excited about charts now, although I think I, people I think, are. Does number one matter in the way that it did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? It does to an artist. It does to a record company. I, think, I do think that modern music radio has slightly lost a trick by not making the charts big and exciting because... People still love a countdown. They really do. Mm. People love a countdown. You start at X number and you know you're going to end up at number one. And there's always something interesting who's going to be number one this week. And there are more charts these days. Well, there are. And I'm sure this week, hey, you know, what's been the big news? Eurovision, we finally did well. It's actually a really good song. He's got a great voice. I'm sure Sam Ryder will be number one with Spaceman and, and good. But we've also got other charts and we've got we heritage have. music and all of these yep. things. It's all out there. You know, it is. And, and I suppose that the brilliant thing with technology, it's allowed different people of different ages to find the music they love and, and get excited by it and enjoy it all over again. And it, to be fair, pretty much anyone now in this country who's alive has grown up with rock and roll if you think back in the 50s mm. so that was mm. you know 70 years ago they've grown up so if you're 90 now you were 20 when <laughs> yeah. elvis was around everyone's been around with rock and roll so you, kids always tend to think that the parents are old and boring but we've all grown up with pop music at some time whatever it may so be so as we as you say you know y- younger people choose their playlists mm. and all the rest of it um is the traditional music radio that's been the, the mainstay of your career is, mm. is it is it is it for the bin, ultimately. Uh, I think if they're not careful, they'll manage decline rather like print did 20 years ago, just because mm. that new younger audience isn't coming up and going through. People who have grown up with pop radio will always love radio because it's been part of our lives. I get in the car, I turn yeah. the radio on. And for you, of course, telly as well, pop idol, mega, yeah. you know, Simon Cowell sitting there looking incredibly young. <laughs> looking very young, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, for you, you know, your fame... Yep. And you're not the only person in your position. Mm. Led to you going through a very, very tough time. Some quite serious accusations, mm. sexual allegations made against you. Yeah. Going through the whole uh, mill of that, but coming out. It was uh, a very hard side. time, and actually a very interesting time, a very interesting period of the history of our country. Actually, what happened 
um, with the police probably during 2012 for a few years, five years after that. In fact, that you know, Channel 4 are making a programme about that period and kind of what happened to try and put it all into some kind of perspective. But, you know, if you go through, you've been through the mill over various things in your life, yeah. you either kind of sit there and whinge and moan about it or you have to go, right, let's crack on. Um, I don't want that to, I guess... Uh, that's not going to be the thing that defines my life, hopefully. But at the time... So, oh, at the time, it's, at the time, it's shocking, it's dreadful. When you're being accused of these oh kind God, of things. it's awful, and you've got to go through it. And, it's, of course, it's not just uh, you who goes through family. these things. It's my family and my kids at school and my wife and my, my wider family. So it, it's a very hard time, of course, but then, you know, you punch through it and you, you crack on. And Cliff Richard was a friend and supporter and helper during this period? Well, yeah, I, I hadn't really... I'd, I'd met Cliff a few times, but obviously he was going through his battles, and so was Paul Gambaccini. And we did actually sort of really get to know each other uh, yeah. during that whole that whole. But there uh, were some time. bad guys, weren't there? There was a famous Radio One DJ called Savile. Oh my God! So there well, were some horrors out there. There were some absolute horrors, and that's kind of in a way what really kicked all this off. I'm sure yeah. when you look back at, in historically at what happened there. Yeah. Now television, radio, mm. an entertainer. You know, Doctor Fox, as I still <laughs> know you, not Foxy or Neil, but but interestingly. You know, you've not said a lot over the years about current affairs, mm. about the state of the world. You've been quite cautious, I guess. I think if, you, if you're a broadcaster, that. you have to be careful you're, because we stick to what we know, which is music and entertainment. So does someone want to hear me talking about politics? But of course, politics affects me. And here we are with this magnificent backdrop of where it all happens. Over we have there. the Palace of Westminster behind um, us. And by the way, this isn't being recorded. We're just having a beer. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I so think we need to get your sort of your take <laughs> on this. This is Fox on the state of the nation. So where are well, we? Where are we? Well, I think like lots of people, I am uh, intrigued, frustrated, angry, but also fascinated by what happens over there and in politics. I do wonder, and we've talked you know, about broadcasting and how technology has changed and how it's changed the way we receive information and how it can connect. I mean, look, social media can have many positive effects it can have many negatives as well but i do wonder whether you know that building and the way it operates behind is fit for purpose anymore and whether we haven't got to really start rethinking how modern politics exists in 2022 and beyond because I kind of wonder who on earth would want to be a politician nowadays because the world of twitter and social media means that massively important uh, topics are dealt with with one word or one phrase. This is how we're dealt with. It's either crap, brilliant, fab, or whatever. It's a one-liner or scum. You know, you remember that which Angela Rayner did. But you know, you kind of. But it all comes down to one le one line or one phrase, and you think things are way more complex than that. But. The problem is that's how our world is operating at the moment. And things maybe things obviously need far more nuance. Things are rarely black and white. They're far yeah. more grey. I, I mean, you know, your skill as a broadcaster was connecting with millions of people. Yep. Who saw you as being relevant yep. to them, their lives, who you were as a person. Do, our, do you think our politicians, when you look at the front benches, mm. do you think these people connect with ordinary folk out there? Well, I, I genuinely don't, know, And I think that's always part of the problem. When people say politics is boring, I mean, it, it isn't boring. I think what they probably mean <coughs> is the people doing it don't seem to be anything like us. And you really do feel that it's a little bubble and a world um, where they don't really know their constituents. There are so many... I wonder whether we need to really look at in the future what kind of people become MPs. Should we change the electoral system? Would that help? Well, you do think... 
is that still fit for purpose? Because the social media, the internet, has allows people now to find other people who have the same views. It's not as just them. red or blue, is it? Anymore? No, it isn't anymore. It, it, you know, you can find your tribe everywhere, yeah. except. When it comes down to elections, it's really, okay. is it Tory? Is it Labour? Really, it still comes down to it. It's not quite as bad as it is in America. But you think things are far more nuanced than that. And if you were a Green, why don't you should be allowed to vote for a Green? And if there are 10 percent of people in Britain that are Green, you know, maybe the whole idea of 2015 UKIP leader, four (sighs) four million votes and one seat. So and I, you know, well, no, exactly. So I've, I've been through that. What about House of Lords? How does that look to you? How's it look? Well, I, there needs to be a system in place that somehow takes a check on what happens in the Commons. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I think the kind of people that they put in there need to be people that have been in business. Have seen, or, you know, uh, uh, more and more we, we know there are people who have got experience of life and careers and the real world that are ending up in there who are making those checks. I, I think we need more of those kind of people in the Commons oh, as well. Oh, we do, sure. we do. Yeah. And actually, with the par- two big parties dominating English politics completely, and England being 86, 87% of the population of the UK. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're choosing people who are safe. Yes. What, what, what we need is people that actually speak their mind, but can bring stuff. something to the table, and, 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 stuff. and yes. have done real life. So they understand what it's yeah. like to be a nurse, a care worker, or run a business. But people, certainly for the world of business, what they're put off by is the mm. fact that you know, nobody starts from nothing and builds a successful business career without a few hiccups yeah, for sure. along the road. And it's that that gets exposed, not just by media, but by social media, repeated yep. endlessly. Yeah, we're putting off really good people, I'm afraid, from entering British politics, and it's sad. Is it politics next for you, Neil Fox? God, I, I think with my track record, I'd be crucified, wouldn't I? But I mean, there lies the problem, yeah. that if you have experience of life and, and, and you could bring something maybe to you know, that house... Yeah, but you were proven innocent of, of all no, of that. No, so, for sure. So. But, what, but what I'm saying in general, I think um, just having been a broadcaster and a DJ and the stupid things that we've done on Pop Idol, people yeah. would, would give you a hard time for. They'd bring everything well, up. I don't but, know. You know, a chap who used to run The Apprentice in America became president. <laughs> so you never Crazier know. Crazier things can happen. You never right? know. Look, thank you very much indeed. That's a pleasure. Talking Cheers. Bites. Great to have you. Nice to meet thank you. you. Okay, two minutes left on programme. It's time for Barrage the Farage. You've sent your questions in. I haven't seen them yet. I've kept Foxy here just in case I get in trouble, (laughs) as he's becoming so political these days. (laughs) Sue asks, why is the music industry so boring now? There are no longer personalities like Bowie or Freddie Mercury. Well, um, things change, right? But, and I, and I, I do think this is a big problem. Uh, We've kind of heard everything before. Everything now is slightly derivative of what has come before. What's interesting about the Eurovision guy and why people are saying he did really well was he's always been a fan of Bowie and Queen, for example, classic yeah. British rock. And there were definitely elements of that in that Eurovision song. And it sounded good. There we are, you see. Not re- yeah, I mean, in fact, you know, great themes set out by people and they keep on rolling mm. and rolling and it happens in music and art and literature and elsewhere. Nick asks, Nigel, do you agree that we should end free food in NHS hospitals? You go in there for health care, not free food. Money is better spent elsewhere in the NHS. I think actually, Nick, Florence Nightingale, I, I accept it was a few years ago, but I think she thought actually that fresh air, good food, an optimistic atmosphere, professional nurses, cleanliness, were very important factors in getting people better. I just having seen some of the food and having been served some of the food myself in NHS hospitals, wonder whether the food is actually good enough, not whether people should be asked to pay for it. 
Robbie asks, what do you think about a university employee throwing eggs at a statue of Margaret Thatcher? Uh, quite frankly, Robbie, given the poison minds in too many of our universities these days, because they're not taught critical thinking, they're not taught to respect both sides of an argument, nothing that happens in those universities with any statue would surprise me in any way at all. Let's hope that gets reversed along with much else. I've enjoyed being here this evening. I hope you have too. Great to have Neil here in the studio with me. I'll be back here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Before that, of course, Mark Stein will talk to you. But before even any of that, let's have a look at the weather. It's going to be lovely tomorrow. Oh, no, 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 it's... Uh, I, I'm, before the, I'm before the weather, Nigel. Hey, that was great stuff with uh, Neil Fox, although now I've got that awful uh, blame-it-on-the-boogie thing stuck in my head. Don't blame it on the sunshine. Coming up, Mike Bad, he'll blame it on the sunshine. Uh, the United Kingdom is back in the Eurovision biz. Uh, Mike Bat's the man to talk about that. And we'll continue our exploration of boosters and mandates with two of the women widowed by the COVID vaccines. And we have more on the World Health Organization's power grab over you. All that after the weather. Good evening. Alex Deacon here with your latest weather update from the Met Office. Some thunderstorms around this evening and there could well be a few more tomorrow evening. But for most of tomorrow, it's going to be a fine and pretty warm day, especially over eastern England. Weather systems are out in the Atlantic, but they're not really making much progress. What they are doing is drawing up warm and humid air from the south. And that's why we've had a few thunderstorms today. Clearing away from northeast England during this evening, northeast Scotland likely to stay quite uh, cloudy with rain at times overnight. But for most, it's going to be a dry nights, maybe turning a little misty in places and temperatures not dropping too far, 10 or 11 below. And as I said, for most, it's going to be a fine day tomorrow. Plenty of hazy sunshine on offer. Any early morning mist will clear. The coast of eastern Scotland up to Orkney may stay pretty misty and murky and there'll be a lot of cloud for Northern Ireland. And this cloud will provide some outbreaks of rain that will just at times affect West Wales, southwest England and move into western Scotland, where it could be quite heavy, particularly by the end of the day. Uh, a cooler feel here as well with temperatures in the mid-teens, but further east with some sunshine, widely over 20 Celsius across the southeast up to East Anglia. 26, maybe 27 is possible. It'll be cooler where it stays misty uh, along the coast across the far northeast as well. That rain is likely to pep up and spread more widely across the country during the evening. The threat of further thunderstorms across East Anglia and the southeast before again. All that rain tends to shift out of the way as we head for the early hours of Wednesday morning. And again, then for Wednesday, most of the day will be dry and bright. A brighter day for uh, Northern Ireland, West Wales, with some good spells of sunshine. There will be a few showers across the Highlands and the Western Isles. But as I say, for most Wednesdays, another fine, pretty warm day. Maybe not quite as warm as Tuesday, but temperatures still widely into the high teens or low to even mid-20s across the southeast. Goodbye.